listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, March 5th, 2007, Episode 9, Enlightened Teachers. In our latest podcast with Theravada teacher Daniel Ingram, he breaches the taboo of enlightenment by discussing the enlightenment of other teachers. Not only that, but he argues for a more transparent approach to enlightenment within certain teaching circles in hopes that enlightenment can become more attainable. This is part two of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. Most of the teachers that I've sat with in the insight meditation tradition, which you mentioned earlier, many of them have been sitting 15, 20, 25, maybe even 30 years, and I've actually never heard any of them make an outright claim that they're enlightened or or even hint at it, actually. Never heard that. Except that that's just also not true. So you don't get on the IMS teacher senior teacher list without somebody thinking you're enlightened. And anyone who thinks they do is delusional. And if you really will nail these people on a, in a private interview, some of them will talk about it, and more than you might think. Um, I don't want to go around naming names, but uh, you can get them to talk about it if you're willing to go there and just say, hey, this is what I need to talk about because I think it's going to be good for my practice and this is why. And so, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure that everybody who's on that list deserves to be on that list, but that's another complicated uh, subject. That said, they don't let anybody on the list who they don't think is enlightened. That's just true. Uh, and Christopher Titmus, for instance, I used to sit with him and someone asked, are you suffering? And he would sit up there and go, this Christopher Titmus is not suffering. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty explicit a claim as you can make. And every single Zen master, you know, who's up there, just by having the name Roshi, you've already said you're enlightened. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you've already said that. Or by teach, you know, if you're the abbot of a monastery in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, they don't let you do that unless you're at least second path. I mean, that's minimum criteria for them, you know, so you know all of them are enlightened, you know, and they don't let you be a real lineage holder and be a senior teacher really until you're an arhat. And usually, with, you know, so you can pretty much check off, you know, what Upandita and, you know, Ukundala and Ujanaka Bhavamsa and all these people are. And then there's Bhante Gunaratana, who's always talking about Naroda Samapati, like from personal experience, you know, so that means he's at least an anagami, you know, and so you just start half, start paying attention, you'll go, wait a second, you know, and essentially everybody, all the Tibetan kids who are saying, you know, they've got some fancy title, I'm, you know, someone Lama Rinpoche, well, that means you're enlightened, you know, they're not up there wearing the fancy hats because they don't know what they're doing, they don't let you wear the fancy hat if you don't know what you're doing. You know, so the notion that somehow all these people aren't claiming it when that's exactly what's hope happening in public is just completely <laughs> blind. Why do you think people, at least in the in the traditions I'm familiar with in, in the West, don't really publicly talk about it that much, even if they are enlightened to some degree or another? Do, do you think they think it's it's probably not helpful for people who are practicing? Um, yeah, and it's a it's a fair and reasonable argument. Um, and so that's part of the argument, the standard, you know, argument of the IMS senior, you know, people, Joseph and Sharon and some of these people will say explicitly, you should not do this. It's very bad. It just confuses people. And there's lots of good reasons why, because one, the models are a mess. And so the moment you say you're enlightened, all of a sudden the models that come up in people are just astoundingly bad. 
And they project a thousand tons of absurd ideals onto anybody who says that if they begin to believe it. So let's say you begin to believe someone's enlightened and you've got this model. Well, then you must say, well, they must fit this model. The chances of them fitting the model are essentially zero unless your model is outrageously human and very down to earth, which pretty much nobody's is. All the standard models involve ideals of self-perfection that are completely preposterous, ideals of demolishing all possible negative emotions and perfecting all possible skillful actions and all of these things, which are absurd. And so, you know, and the problem is that's the models that the traditions hand to us. They say, here's what's supposed to happen when it's really a mix. Some of the traditions say, no, it's just the coming down to earth and the unwinding of the knot of perception and the realizing of emptiness of all things. Well, that's pretty easy. And then there are models that are explicit in all these traditions that also say, Neil, you will become the, you know, highly perfected, emotionally sanitized, you know, free from all psychological, you know, baggage, um, you know, guru wazoo, which is completely um, absurd. And so, you know, first of all, just even having the conversation and clarifying what these models are and mean has really never happened on the Western scene, and nobody has been willing to stand up there and uh, say, hey, wait a second, these these strange ideals that were used to sell this and to, you know, put food on monks' tables and stuff and, you know, make this a- appeal to the mainstream are just a, a lot, load of junk, and nobody's been willing to get up there and do that except a few people. You know, you can look at Krishnamurti a little bit, and you can look at um, some of the Hindu Vedanta people are willing to do it, and some of the Zen reformists are willing to do it. But everybody ends up getting caught in this weird sort of financial, you know, authority trap of wanting to somehow either to please students or to have people listen to you or to get food put in your bowl, say, I am sort of an amazing person, which is not really the same thing as having waken up to the basic facts of your own true nature. And that, you know, those sorts of dialogues just haven't really occurred and really need to occur um, to bring the whole thing down to earth and make it realistic. And the reason I will claim that needs to happen is because the greater the the gap is between someone's model of how things are supposed to be and how what they're supposed to be able to achieve and how great they're supposed to be able to become, the, the greater the gap between that ideal and what their actual life is at that moment, the harder time they're going to have waking up. Because what you have to wake up is to the real deal, and that's to what your life is. And so, you know, all these people who go around either not having the conversation and just letting the projection and confusion run rampant or, um, you know, make a living of using the projection to, you know, be supported because now they are the holy sangha for the benefit of the world or whatever. So they don't have to have a real job. They're they're all perpetuating this uh, culture of secrecy and confusion and false projection. Um, And I think that's really bad for people's practice because people need to wake up to what they actually are and who they actually are. Because that's the point. And if they are as an erotic mess, well, they need to wake up to that because that's the truth, you know, <laughs> and that is as empty as anything else and thus as capable of producing a realization as anything else. That's my answer. You seem stunned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I- I've definitely heard you, you know, talk about that before. Just just thinking, you know, to like classes I've had in the past couple of months at Naropa where you know, I, I won't name names either, but teachers who've been on traditional three-year retreats, things like that, they they seem to have a pretty uh, solid belief that enlightenment actually is leading to this sort of end-all, perfectly happy, everything in your life is just sort of spotless and clean 
kind of state. And I, uh, I know, like in the in the sort of dogma of Buddhism, that's that's really common. Yeah. So it's and it's all shocking, the other traditions. Almost. You look at Hindu Vedanta; it's there in spades. Hmm. Yeah. And yet, look what actually happens to them. So if you actually have the privilege of knowing some of these people intimately, you know, and seeing them have, you know, dysentery and watching them, you know, die of cancer and the agony of chemotherapy or watching them, you know, do, uh, you know, whatever mundane things or have, you know, horrible financial difficulties or have fights with their spouses or, you know, whatever it is. And you get to realize, wait a second, you know, and it's only up on the pedestal you know, that they can pull that off. But if you followed them around all day long and got to actually know them, which almost never happens now, you know, in this culture where everyone flies in, stands up on the pedestal, spouts a bunch of dogma and like zips off before anyone can figure out they're as neurotic and messed up as the rest of us. Um, and, you know, it's like Jack Cornfield used to say, he said, if you took all these people and put them in our Western context, they'd be as bad as we are. And it's true. And so, you know, if you look at the life of the Buddha, I spent a lot of time going back and looking at the life of the Buddha. He suffered from all kinds of things. There's a list of 14 things he suffered from, and I can't remember what they all are, but one of them was severe headaches, which were probably migraines. You know, he suffered from these severe and terrible headaches. And there's this interesting story where he's talking about when he's dying, and you can find this in one of the sutras, um, where he's talking about how he, you know, was dying of dysentery, which is, of course, what the obvious thing to die of in India from some bad food that this uh, guy had given him um, accidentally. He wasn't trying to poison the Buddha. but And he talks about how he rose all the way up to the highest jhanas he could attain, and still he could find no relief from that suffering. Well, that's real. You know, and so, and there are other stories. You can look, there's a, a sutra where an, an arhat um, is in terrible pain from a, a bad illness, and he says he's going to take his own life because he just can't stand it anymore. And so they they run to the rest of the Sangha and they send back these, you know, emissary to talk to him and, you know, run back to the Buddha and they say, oh, isn't this all terrible? And the guy's like, well, you know, I get that, <laughs> essentially. And uh, the guy kills himself with a knife. And, you know, that's real. And so, you know, it, it all sounds so good until you go reading the original stuff and you read the life of the the great masters, you know. They all had problems. They all had difficulties. They all had, you know, problems. If you le read about the life of Marpa or, you know, Milarepa, they all had all kinds of conflicts and ran into all kinds of stuff and had to deal with standard worldly junk like we all do because they were human. And that's what it's about realizing. And so it's only because people haven't really looked at the lives of these people and gone, wait a second, they were just as human as we are, that they don't know that. Um, and people should be saying that. And they're not saying that. And, I, you know, except on occasion. You know, and I think that's really criminal because, again, it perpetuates something that keeps people from waking up to what they are. Um, and that's the whole point of practice is to understand the depths of, you know, this moment. And that includes your humanity and all its glory and horror. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com. Copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. 
hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.